Hello, this is James Kent. I am the Movie Morlock. Welcome to the program. And uh, as always, you can find me and the episodes on MovieMorlock.com, or you can follow me on Instagram. Um, and then you can also just, you know, find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is out there. I mean, I don't, by now, it just, there's spiders to grab the show and you can find it. If you've uh, found it here, I guess, then you're, then you're on your way. And then, of course, you can also email me at uh, moviemorlock at gmail.com. There you go. So that's all the information you need. Um, Back uh, last episode, a good friend, Shannon, she uh, dropped by and we duked it out over uh, licorice pizza. I think we both survived. Uh, I think it's still uh, me enjoying licorice pizza and uh, Shannon not enjoying it as much. Uh, but anyways, now I'm kind of, uh, not going to the movies is really nothing that I'm going to take an hour drive uh, to go see. And there's nothing really playing near me that I want to see. I want to see that drive my car movie that is getting great reviews, but I think I'm going to have to wait till it shows up streaming somewhere. Um, in the meantime, I've been uh, kicking it on uh, criterion, checking out what they have there. You know, there's not some sometimes some months they've got offering up a theme that I get really excited about and I just dive in. Uh, other times, you know, not so. But one theme that they had, and I don't know, it could be leaving at the end of this month, quite honestly. So, uh, you know, if you hear this, you better get there really fast. They've been doing a focus on uh, Alfred Hitchcock. I think it was called Hitchcock for the Holidays. So it was really December, but it's still up there now in January. And they have a collection of some of his older works, some of his popular favorites, and then his later films, which if you know anything about Hitchcock, his later films were not as well regarded. And there's titles that you may know the names, but you have to go, oh, I've never seen them. And I'm in that category. Uh, there's several movies. Marnie, a lot of people have seen that one. Uh, then there was uh, Torn Curtain, which had Paul Newman and Julie Andrews in it. And then Topaz, which really doesn't have any names. And then there was Frenzy, which was a kind of a sensation probably his last big kind of splash with a little bit of a horror. It's one of his first or maybe only R-rated movies. And then he finished up with sort of a lackluster movie, uh, Family Plot, 1976. And that was not a hit. Most of these films, I Frenzy was a little bit of a hit, but uh, he kind of finished off on a little bit of a quiet note. Uh, the thing is, all those movies I mentioned, I'd never seen from beginning to end any of them. I'd seen moments here and there on TV, but I had to admit that I've never watched them. They don't play as often on TV or revival houses because the ones that you tend to see crop up are like uh, Vertigo, Psycho, The Birds, North by Northwest, Rear Window. Those are the ones uh, that everybody knows. They are some of his best films. Um, They have all of his great style And so even if there's some things that I don't like that he does, you can forgive them because there's so many other great things going on. Um, But on Instagram, when I follow different people that like movies like I do, I tend to sometimes notice people watching the same movies that I'm watching. Um, And there is an account on Instagram that I, I follow. And it is a guy, this guy, Richard Strachey. And I noticed, uh, I don't even know how I started following Richard, but 
I liked the movies that he posted. And, you know, some people on Instagram, I, I, of course, when I post a picture, it's usually saying, hey, I'm covering it on this week's podcast. But some other folks, they post pictures of movies they're watching and then they do like a little review. And I tend to follow people that I, I like the way that they write their little reviews and they say something insightful. And I, I've always found uh, Richard's posts interesting. And I don't think I always agree with what he's saying. And then also he's got a, a pretty deep film knowledge. He sees a lot of foreign movies, stuff that I've never watched. Uh, but I do notice that he must have criterion because he seems to be following along a pattern that I am sometimes. He's, he's watching a, a theme of things. So I thought it would be great since he was watching these later Hitchcock movies that maybe uh, he would come on the program. And so I reached out to Richard and uh, lo and behold, Richard is on with me today. Um, hello, Richard. How are you doing today? Just fine. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, that was a big, super long ramble that it took me to get to introducing you, and I apologize for that. Um, but that's sometimes how it goes. Uh, so, Richard, I, I do believe I'm correct, is that uh, you are a movie fan and you do have Criterion, correct? Absolutely. True on both counts. Before we get into talking about Alfred Hitchcock, which I promise uh, listeners we will, I want to find out a little bit about you and your background and what your, you know, your love of movies and kind of how that came about. Like, you know, is this something that you like loved movies from since a child or is this something that you found uh, that you enjoyed later in life? I'd love to just hear your journey. Definitely started as a child. I remember rather than watching Saturday morning cartoons, my dad would show me some of the old universal horrors, a lot of the Japanese Godzilla um, monster movies, which unfortunately were, were dubbed, but um, we would watch those. And I, I just became interested in that. And once I got to college, I started, actually, I started college in 1998, which was right around the advent of DVDs. And mm. so I realized at that point that as much as I'd enjoyed what I'd watched in the past, I didn't really have any knowledge about film production or film history. So ever since then, you know, I've listened to commentaries, I read critics' reviews, books on, you know, film production. And, you know, like you said, specifically, I am very interested in world cinema. Um, I would say specifically Central Europe, and also the Middle East, but I'm interested in watching films from almost anywhere. And I, I did find that I actually was lacking in my awareness of classic Hollywood as compared to like post-war Europe. So in the past probably five or eight years, I've, I've made more strides toward really catching up with a lot of the, the Hollywood films and Criterion selection has certainly helped with that. Certainly in the last few years, having a Criterion subscription, I've been able to catch up. Um, and I do try to from time to time, even my wife gets in on it. We say, what's like, you know, a famous director that we haven't seen one of their films or we really should. And we'll kind of sit down and watch one like, you know, like a Bergman or um, uh -huh. Kurosawa. Uh, I am, you know, I've seen many of their films, but I'm not like a super expert in that as I am with, say, many uh, American directors. That makes an interesting contrast because I, I think I'm actually 
more familiar with some of those directors than the, <laughs> the Hollywood side. So we'll, I think we'll have a lot of, it, it'll be interesting to just compare perspectives in that respect. Yeah, like, I mean, again, see, I w- the questions that I, I, I've always avoided, and of course, now I'm going to ask you and, and the questions that I personally avoid, but like, I, I don't like those questions of like, what's your favorite film? Because, you know, I, I don't know if I have a favorite film because there are so many movies to like. I can't just say, well, this is the best film I've ever seen or this is my favorite film. I certainly have a collection of films that I would say are my favorites and movies that I think are some of the best. But as time goes on, there's just such a history of movies that it really just to narrow it down to one or two, I, I think is ridiculous. But is there a particular filmmaker, you know, foreign or otherwise, that you particularly like and have seen a lot of their movies? Well, I, I do agree with you that it's almost impossible to narrow down, but um, I would say that I've I've been really influenced by Sergei Parajanov. He was in the Soviet Union um, making films in in the, the South Caucasus primarily. I've also been really influenced by the style of Robert Bresson in France, and then in the the 70s, um, Maurice Pilat, who was um, sort of post Nouvelle Vague. And I would say that they're not necessarily all of my favorite films, but I like the perspective that they have, and I, I found them very influential in my approach to other work. I like to go into every movie thinking it's going to be good. I don't go to a movie hoping it's bad, you know? Um, and so I hope to try to find the good in it, though some movies disappoint me and I, I'm disappointed, but I don't really set out to uh, dismiss a film Though I do feel a lot of people kind of go in to certain movies hoping that they kind of are bad so that they can, you know, pile on them. I would say I take the same approach. I mean, I do post about films that disappoint me or that I have a strongly negative response to. But generally, I mean, anything that I take the time to see, I'm hopeful that it, it's going to offer at least an element that that appeals to me and is worth sharing. And I, I always try to highlight that, whether it be via images or what I'm writing about. I don't, I don't really enjoy the idea of just piling on and attacking. I mean, every once in a while, I do think it is justified, but for the most part, no. I have got, I got to go to the theater, you know, a few times this year. Uh, this past year, but not a, not a ton. So I have to rely on what's available to streaming. And, you know, I have a mixed bag on this 2021's crop of critically acclaimed films. I only found a couple movies that I thought were really, really worthy. Um, how have you done on 2021? Have you seen a lot of films? I'm actually really behind on that because I get so carried away with these um, retrospectives and catalog titles. I'm hoping the next month or two to to catch up on a lot of the new releases. I've not actually set foot in a theater in nearly two years. The last one I saw was uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and it was about a week before everything shut down in in March 2020. And I'm mostly behind as far as that goes. Yeah, now Portrait of the Lady on Fire is a movie that I caught 
when it was, I think it's on Hulu. So when it first came out in Hulu and a couple of years ago, I remember um, doing a show on it. We had a, when my old partner, uh, Teal and I did one with a friend of ours, Carrie, and that movie I really loved. And I wished that's a film that I wish I could have seen on the big screen because I think that it, it really couldn't reward viewers in a different way if you're if seeing it, you know, on a really, really big screen. Absolutely. And that was other than a film or two that I've seen when my parents have come to visit. That was really the last time that I had any kind of communal experience with a film whatsoever. So it it really sticks firmly in my mind. And I, I think that the film would have lingered regardless, but it's it's assumed a higher position, I think, than than maybe it otherwise would have. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like so many other things that may have seemed mundane at the time, but there are certain moments that I suppose will kind of always stick in our memories of sort of like what happened just before <laughs> the pandemic, Absolutely. Uh, you know, as it, as it rolls into uh, year three <laughs> around the corner. And it seemed even more peculiar because I, I looked back on the calendar and realized that it was on the 29th of February. So it was this leap year night. Oh, yeah. So it, it felt even more like this, this stolen moment. So, we, we've established uh, again just 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 the brief things that you've talked about. Um, you know, you definitely have a film eye. You 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 don't just go and see the popcorn flicks. You, you definitely um, like a little bit more of engrossing material. Um, and then, here, of course, here we go with Hitchcock, who was regarded at first regarded by the the French as an auteur, and so he got this you know reputation and. I think during my day of college, uh, which is the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, you know, he was a revered figure. And in film school, which I went to, definitely saw several of his films in film class. Um, and then in the 80s, you know, he died in 1980. So it was in the early 80s when several of his movies, which had been tied up in legal rights, hadn't really been seen on TV before because of the the legal issues. Those got cleared up and there was like a sort of batch of five films, um, Rope being one of them, uh, I believe The Trouble with Harry, uh, Vertigo, Rear Window, and um, To Catch a Thief, I think. So those five had hardly been seen by viewers and they started to be made available in the early 80s. And that's when I they would actually release them in theaters and I went to see some of them and, and Rear Window had a huge impact on me when I got to see it in I think like 83. And so I think that decade was a period where people started to get to know Hitchcock beyond uh, Psycho and The Birds. Uh, which is, well, which I, that's how I knew him, right? I'd seen The Birds and I had seen Psycho, but that's it. I didn't know anything else about him. And then I started to get really interested in him and seeing a lot of his other films and, you know, uh, like Notorious and Spellbound and Rebecca and Lifeboat, um, a lot of those things from the 40s. I'm, I'm not too well versed in his 1930s movies or his silent films, um, but I think I've seen most of the films that he's done um, from Strangers on a Train on up. I believe I've seen all of the ones that you mentioned. And I did go back about two or three years ago and I did pick up 
some knowledge of the ones that he made in Britain in the 30s and a, a couple of the silence. So there's some interesting material there, to be sure, if you, if you have time to go to the other side of his career. I've always heard that the later Hitchcock years were not his best moments. Uh, a lot of them were not box office hits. A lot of people felt like maybe he had just, you know, he got over the hill or something. And so for whatever those reasons, I kind of skipped a lot of those films because I just heard they weren't very good. And again, they don't show them that often. Uh, but I'd always been intrigued, especially by Marnie. I think I'd seen a couple of clips and I thought, wow, that, this looks kind of interesting. So uh, that's the first one we're gonna, uh, on this focus. So his he had like a one-two punch in the early 60s. Psycho, m- big sensation. He follows that up with the birds, another big sensation. And then he follows that up with 1964's Marnie with Tippi Hedren. And she, of course, was in The Birds. And he didn't want her. He was trying to get Grace Kelly, his muse, back. Um, and negotiations broke down, I think, because she was a princess. And the, all of the subject matter of Marnie, the the, the crown said, no way. They, she cannot be in this movie. So he then begrudgingly hires Tippi Hedren, uh, Sean Connery, who, you know, he's just hitting it big with James Bond movies. Um, those are the two big stars in the film. It was uh, written based on a book, and it was written by uh, the screenplay by Jay Preston Allen. Uh, she, illustrious screenwriting career. She um, was nominated for Cabaret and Prince of the City. Um, and then it's the last collaboration with his longtime color cinematographer, Robert Burks. Um, so he did some great collaborations with Robert Burks. And Robert Burks would die uh, four years later in 1968 in a fire. But Robert Burks did Rear Window and Vertigo and To Catch a Thief, all these vibrant Technicolor films with Hitchcock. And this was the last one. Um, so there's definitely some things that seems like this would be cool to watch. But I was uh, left kind of like jaw dropped at how kind of shockingly uh, bad at times this was. However, I remember reading your review, and I think you were a little bit kinder on the movie than I was. You found more to like. Yeah, I'm I'm fonder of this one, and this is, out of the five we're going to discuss, the only one that I had seen previously, and I've always... I've always appreciated the tension that I is just palpable in the Tippi Hedren character, and I feel like in some ways that may have even been amplified by the fact that basically she knew that she wasn't really wanted on the set, and I. I f- I feel like it, it's a movie that works well sort of in comparison with movies like Polanski's Repulsion that came out around the same time where it's not exactly a woman in distress, but there's there's a sense of being uncomfortable in your environment and not finding any way around that. And I, I going back to it, and it had been at least 10 years, maybe longer since I'd seen it, I did... F- see a few more of its flaws. I felt that it was overly long. I felt that a few of the reactions were were too over the top. But I, I don't know. I still have a fondness just for the the tone and the mood specifically as brought out by Tippi Hedren. And it's funny because I didn't like the Tippi Hedren performance. Uh, and I found, I mean, again, this is tough. It, it is dated. It's from 1964. That's almost 60 years ago. And 
it's overly misogynistic uh-huh. and and it just doesn't look good in that light. You know, I mean, again, we're getting 60 years later, but I don't even know if it was looking that good in, you know, the early 60s. I mean, certainly it's a woman's story that is directed by a man. Like the Sean Connery role, it's that sort of slimy, oh, a woman needs a man to help fix their problems. And he's the one who can recognize it. He can, he can help her get the help she needs. And it's just... That part just really kind of made me feel a little bit icky. Um, and then there's the sort of maybe, maybe Sean Connery kind of rapes her on the boat. Maybe he doesn't, but it's still very uncomfortable. Yes. And I've known that. I like. I didn't know what the context was, but I knew that there was always a problematic scene in the movie between uh, Tippi Hedren and Sean Connery. I just didn't know what it was fully until I watched the film. Though, I, I mean, I think you are correct. There are some definitely, as much as it's manipulative and it's dated and I don't really like the misogyny just on full display, there are some good tension moments. And then there's the one famous sequence. Well, there's two famous sequences. But the one that I thought was really the only, like, has Alfred Hitchcock really doing his thing is that great scene when Marnie is trying to break into the vault and it's done in a wide shot. So you can see the action that she can't see while she's trying to break in to the, you know, to the vault in the office. You have somebody that's cleaning up in the other office area and you're wondering, is Marnie going to get caught? And it is very, very suspenseful, I thought. Absolutely. And especially holding, I believe it's entirely a static shot. I know you can see both parties, but I I don't think that the camera ever moves. And it's definitely a highlight. And this is what frustrates me. Um, And this is what you're really going to see throughout all of the films that we're going to talk about. It really just drives me batty is he does that. And it's so great. And he lives for those moments. He likes those moments. But then and again, you know, this isn't going to be a whole dissertation on the idea of him and his auteur theory and control in the studio. But at this stage, when more and more filmmakers were moving out of the studio and shots that were just a staple to do in a studio, it was becoming more than passe. It was really becoming unacceptable and lazy, I think. There are scenes that are so obnoxious in Marnie and then even worse down the road where you have two characters in an in a, like a scene where you would normally have you'd be outdoors in a background and he puts the rear screen projection going and it's so obvious that it's kind of it's embarrassing and it takes me out of the movie and I know there's a lot of apologists out there that want to like believe that there are some magical reasons why Alfred Hitchcock was doing this Um, but I don't think so. I think it was just, he was lazy and because he liked to kind of cut in camera and not give the editor any stuff to cut, he'd find himself missing shots because he didn't get it on set and he'd have everybody quickly come back into the studio with a rear screen projection and he would do a scene to get the shot that he had left out. And I hate it. I just find it very distracting and annoying. I don't mind the matte paintings that you can see in the movies, but I do mind the rear screen projection. I'm with you there. And I don't personally find any 
justification for the extensive use of those, especially in some of these later ones. It, it is, as you said, it gets to the point of embarrassing. The family plot is the best. <laughs> when they're in the jewelry store and you can see people kind of walking and he's got like, he's got a rear projection further out so that there's people walking outside the store and the rear projections behind them. And it's just, you see these halos and it looks so terrible that I can't even focus on the scene. Oh, absolutely. Oh, and one one thing looping back to some of the troublesome elements of Marnie, I kind of look at it as something analogous to a Lars von Trier film. I think that he, if any, if any current director were to tackle this material and try to remake it, I think he could he could do something with it. I don't know whether it would be good or bad, but I think it has that element, which it intrigues me because it's sort of like. You don't know if he, um, like with the Sean Connery character, there's an ambiguity. Is he really that awful and just unrepentant? Or is it, um, It's. Just, I, I feel like it's a tone that Von Trier could also handle. I think that Alfred Hitchcock thinks uh, that Sean Connery is like this hero who's saving uh, Marnie. However, it doesn't play well today. I don't think yes. it played well like, even then because it was not a big hit. Um, but I think that because I think audiences were changing and it was becoming very obvious that it was it was heavy handed. Plus, there's also just the fact that she she's there at the very beginning and Sean Connery's visiting that one guy's shop and she's just, you know, fleeced that guy. But then suddenly she magically is working for Sean Connery's company. And there's that sort of coincidence factor that comes into play. These are things that. I noticed in all of Alfred Hitchcock's movies is he will use a screenplay to get him from A to B to C, and he doesn't care how ridiculous those plot things are. I think you're going to find that in Frenzy when we get to, the, to yeah. there. Yeah. But he doesn't care because he just wants to be able to tell his story his way. So he doesn't care. However, I think audiences, like these are things in the 40s movies and the 50s, you kind of just bought that, yeah, these are the way screenplays were, but he was still doing them in these films. Now, I, I, before we, I don't want to, you know, we only have so much time to talk about each movie, which is fair or unfair, but there is something else in Marnie, which I did find, it was like jaw dropping, but like, I don't know, it was definitely stylish and it was crazy and insane and I kind of liked it, but it was also weird, is there's the whole thing on the horse. Uh, she goes riding early and it's clear that she's on like this dummy horse. And then there's this rolling mat in the background and it's really wacky. But it was when the horse scene where she goes off from the hunt, whatever. And she's, yes. uh, and it's, it's done in such a wacky way. And then when she falls, it's cut and done in such a bizarre Alfred Hitchcock way that it's schlocky over the top. And then she goes totally insane and then they have to shoot the horse. And it's just, it's the most insane sequence that I've seen in almost any Alfred Hitchcock movie. And I actually really love that scene because of the way he, he takes it over the top. It reminds me a bit of, um, some sequences in Reiner Werner Fassbender where he he knows the melodrama, melodramatic um, conventions and intentionally pushes it to a level beyond what would be certainly naturalistic or maybe expected from the audience. There, the thing like the horse, the artificiality of the whole thing, it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's other times where it doesn't. It's like, you know, the, the driving scenes, and I mean, I get it, like until much later driving scenes 
were always, you know, rear screen projection. Today, they still do a lot of these tricks. I always hate it. Like, one of the things that I like in films, and I realize that I'm, I'm a guy who tends to like realism. And so, like, neorealism appeals to me because I am somebody who finds it more fascinating to see things as they are. When people are driving in a car, I want to feel like the car is really driving, and I don't want to be distracted unless it's intentionally done like in Pulp Fiction and the Cab Ride. That's, that's like intentional. But I find too many of those movies, it feels lazy. But nobody does it more lazy than Alfred Hitchcock. There's the scene that was probably the most interesting or possibly most interesting moment in Torn Curtain, which is when they're riding the bus. That was exactly what I was thinking of, too. And it's ruined because it's like you could just see that they're not on a real bus because of the, the background movement is so poor. Mm-hmm. It distracts. So anything that he's trying to do to build tension, it becomes laughable instead. That was one technical aspect I found just completely embarrassing. And I felt like th- this film got off to such a slow, clumsy start that I was excited that it was finally building tension. It was creating this this timed escape, this chase scene. And then suddenly a lot of that was squandered because of the the rear projection. It's funny. At first, I'm like, why is Alfred Hitchcock with Torn Curtain in 66 and Topaz in 69, why is he all involved in this spy stuff? And then I kind of forgot that some of the things that he loves is he was always in, you know, almost every movie he made had something to do with suspense. Like he didn't really go out of his lane too often for such an auteur. He stayed in one lane, but he loved in the 40s and 30s. He loved spy movies. He loved them. And so World War II was a great uh, time for those spy capers. And so here in the 60s, he's, you know, we got the Cold War. Um, you got the Berlin Wall, all this stuff. So, you know, he probably thought this is very timely to tackle these spy movies. But he does it in such an old-fashioned way. And again, the needle had moved. And he just wasn't there with what, I think audiences were expecting. So Torn Curtain, the idea is interesting, but the entire execution is pretty flawed. And I don't think there's anything really necessarily wrong with Paul Newman or Julie Andrews, though uh, it's kind of a come down for her after uh, the Von Trapps there in 65, where she just basically is the window dressing for Paul Newman and is that oh, I'll stick with you no matter what, even if you're a spy. and Or she thought he was a traitor at first, but she was still going to stay with him when he went to sell yeah. his formulas over there. Um, plus, it also just didn't seem very realistic because the farm scene, which is a great scene, you like how would he have ever even been able to get out there? They would have, they were watching him like a hawk. And of course they did. They followed him. Um, yes. But it just like, but see, Hitchcock didn't care because they wanted to have this amazing sequence. And it is probably the most, I think it's the most famous scene in the movie, right? I believe so. That That's the one that I've seen excerpted and, and talked about specifically that, you know, if you see only one moment, this is the one and that it's, it's moving toward a level of realism that, that hadn't typically been seen with him. Yeah, and it is great. I mean, they have uh, the the you know. It's funny because often it's a mistaken. The the woman who's running the farm is not Liv Ullman. Um, it looks like Liv Ullman, but it is not. And uh, it's so great that he goes in, and then he's followed by you know one of those uh, Eastern uh, Germany handler guys, and they have this fight. And it's great is that she sticks him in the chest with a knife, and it snaps off. 
And that is our great tension because you've never seen that in a movie. It's always like someone gets stuck with a knife and two seconds later they're dead. Yes. And that was always ridiculous. So here's the guy who will put anybody in front of a rear screen if they're sitting down to lunch. And yet he goes to great lengths in this this fight to the death sequence to show how hard it is to kill somebody. And I had read that he had been alienated to some degree about how easily it was to execute people in the James Bonds and some of the current spy movies. So he wanted to take the opposite approach and show, you know, just how much of a physical struggle it would be, which I think he did effectively. Yeah. I don't, and I don't know how fast the guy would have died in the gas of the oven with the oven door open like that. I don't know, <laughs> but, uh, but it kind of like finally ended him pretty quickly at that point. But uh, I, I enjoyed that moment. That was, but there's just, and then again, like I said, the, the bus ride, there was some tension, but then the, the, the woman on the bus who suddenly was like, we're going to get caught. We're going to get, she was annoying. <laughs> very, very much so. And so I know that was designed to build tension, but there was too much going on. You had fake rear projection of another bus coming and to me it seems like you could excuse that away because you could say well we got held up from roadblocks that's why the other bus is behind us but uh those moments could have been great and then again the story just really peters out towards the end i know that hitchcock was gonna go for a more downbeat ending but he was convinced to make it a happy ending oh interesting i wasn't aware of of that change i did a little research (laughs) Because I had to be, because I had to be like, I gotta, I had to find out, like, what the hell was the deal with this torn curtain movie? Um, and like I said, it was just pretty lame. And then Topaz, I don't, I mean, how much is there to really talk about this movie? The, there's no suspense when the Cuban Missile Crisis had happened. It would have been suspenseful in '62, but in '69, those events kind of happened, and we didn't go to World War Three. So. You know, some of the spy stuff built around, I know it's built on a, it's based on a novel, a book by Leon Uris and a screenplay by this guy, Sam Taylor, but it's just, it's a somewhat interesting spy movie and it just has the lamest ending. I found it really interesting with that difference of the, the time that he was already doing a period piece of an era that was, I mean... In 1969, I mean, this was the height of Woodstock, the hippies, and he had jumped back to to the Kennedy era. And it it seemed odd to me that he would be so quick to to go back to that, and then to handle it in such a sort of clumsy way. And it's like, hey man, should we go watch Easy Rider or what about Topaz, man? That right. Alfred Hitchcock, he's got that far out Frederick Stafford, man, exactly. playing the French guy. And you got John Vernon, man, playing Rico Barra. One thing I did find very um, interesting about this film, which brought it more full circle for me, and I, I think it it doesn't really play much into the narrative, but just his ability to cast some of these famous um, French actors like Michel Piccoli. I love Michel Piccoli. It was so cool to see him in it. Yeah, he ha- he had such presence. The, he had his um, his house robe and his cigars and everything. <laughs> and then actually, you know, you, you mentioned at the start how the French critics had been some of the first to really advocate for Hitchcock. And there's the famous book with Truffaut and Hitchcock's interviews, but Claude Jade, the um, 
the younger um, woman that that is married actually to Michelle Subor. Yeah. She had starred in um, quite a few Truffauts and she was doing the, um, the series of five um, films with um, Jean-Pierre Liu. So it, it was interesting for me to see this, this connection with, um, with Truffaut and, and these French actors. If anybody else had made it, I might have watched and said, oh, you know, there's a sort of like dated spy movie that had a few good moments. But knowing that it was Alfred Hitchcock, and that's unfortunate, right? When you have an Alfred Hitchcock, mm-hmm. he's got such a reputation. Then you see a movie like this and, it, you know, you, you start to, well, he's he was on record as saying he, he was one of his least favorite movies. And you could just almost feel like when his heart's not in it because it's yes. just kind of whatever. But there's always one moment. And I think we've talked about this now with each of the other films we've, we've mentioned. There is a moment where you get a little bit of the Hitchcock and then he builds this great tension like no other. And I think there's that scene, uh, we talked offline about this, but uh, where Frederick Stafford, he's going to do a favor for the CIA and he's going to go and investigate. They're up in Harlem, whatever reason, the uh, the Cuban guerrillas, uh, and they're at this hotel and he gets a friend who he knows who kind of works for one of these like CIA agencies to go and pretend to do an interview get in the door and steal this red briefcase, right? So there's the MacGuffin. And the whole way that this scene is played out is really cool where he's across the street of this hotel and you see the guy go in and you're watching from afar and you are the point of view of Frederick Stafford and you you see like, um, you know, facial gestures and stuff, but you can't hear what they're talking about. So you don't know what's happening. And that I thought was really exciting and and very tension when you're trying to figure out, is this guy going to be able to get up to this hotel room and is he going to steal this thing when you don't know what they're talking about? Absolutely. Some of the staging of that with, with the distance and the forced observation and sort of making having forcing yourself to make up what you think they may be saying reminded me a bit of Rear Window. And that's, of course, that's the master of it. Like when you, when you're across a building and you're watching and you're trying to make up the stories of what you think is happening in another place. And of course, that famous part where she goes over to like steal the necklace, that's one of the most, I remember at the time when I very first saw it, how intense that scene was. And, And even though I've seen that movie a bunch of times, when you've seen a movie like five or six times and a scene can still bring that tension, that's pretty amazing. Oh, Absolutely. I was able to get through Topaz, no problem, but by the end, I mean, the end of the movie just really just ended in a, it was really like, wow, it's just, (laughs) it's just over. There's not much to say there. Yes. One thing that's, it's not directly related to the ending, but um, I don't know if you realize, but within the time since we've seen this film in the last week, that um, Michel Subor, the actor who played the um, the younger man who... and Yeah, the son-in-law. The son-in-law. The son-in-law. He actually passed away this week. And uh, another thing, this is today, is Tippi Hedren's birthday that we're taping. Wow. Yeah. Interesting coincidence. <laughs> All sorts of weird Hitchcock coincidences today. And then, you know, after seeing some of these and being so disappointed, I wasn't sure what I was going to get with Frenzy. It's funny. I think it was a pleasant surprise in some ways because I thought it was old form Hitchcock, but yet there was also things that I just really hated about it almost more than any of the other films (laughs) and the same throughout, just because it's Hitchcock 
on a on a crazy formula of the wrong man, which is something that he's gone and done many times and actually had to be thinking about. I'm like, this just seems like such an old concept. This guy who is so blatantly getting kind of blamed for being the killer in the wrong place at the wrong time and somehow still on the run. And then the coincidences of who the killer is in relation to this guy, which really doesn't fit the profile of what a serial killer would do. No. <laughs> and the fact that the police didn't seem to have any other clues from the other uh, serial killings that have been on, but suddenly they've got a whole pile on this one guy who's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yes, definitely. I found him, I found actually almost every man in this movie highly unsympathetic and just, I don't know. It, usually, like, if, if you have someone like a Cary Grant or Henry Fonda that's in that position of wrong man, you feel like, okay, maybe I could even be in their their shoes, and you, you really feel like you're um, rooting for them. Whereas with this particular cast, I, di- I didn't find that at all, and I don't think it was a problem with their acting. It was just maybe I was seeing the contrivance and thinking too much about it being old-fashioned as you'd said well i think that you know again we're in 1972 and we and seven 1970s i know all these movies and it's this weird thing where there's certain films that you watch from the early 70s and yet they still feel like the old hollywood of yesteryear they have like a look and a feel to them that don't quite feel like the decade had caught up with it yet and frenzy kind of fits into that a little bit because you can alfred hitchcock is kind of making a story that has a little bit of those old fashioned things. One thing that I, I was surprised at, and again, this is his first rated R film, is that he he goes and he films it in England for the first time in years. And some of the on-location stuff, when it's actually on location and you can see it and it's not all in you know with a with a rare screen projection. It's a little bit more lively, and I enjoy yes. it. It feels more real. So I liked that. I was excited about that. It was a really good print that they had on Criterion, too, because um, I had seen it. The last time I saw any of it was on TV, the old tube TVs, on UHF channel, probably not a very good print. So it was really a good-looking uh, print. But then what you were saying, and this is something that was Hitchcock's own deal, he, after working with Paul Newman and Julie Andrews, he felt that the stars were forced upon him. They weren't his choices. It wasn't that they were bad. Just he didn't want to work with stars ever again. So, Frenzy, it doesn't have any stars. They were like uh, theater actors. Uh, John Finch was a theater actor, and he was mostly not super famous because he didn't want to have a famous career. He <laughs> he chose not to be famous. He chose to do occasional film roles. And he plays the lead guy, Richard Blaney, who is, he's, he's a jerk. And so it's hard to root for a jerk. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yet it's weird is that during the middle portion of the film, I started to like him a little bit when he was paired up with Anna Massey, who plays his girlfriend Babs, <laughs> the barmaid. <laughs> And then when they team up a little bit, there's some energy there. Like, you know, except for then when she's murdered, sorry, spoiler alert for those who haven't heard it. When she's murdered, it's kind of like, oh, poor Bab. She didn't deserve that. Like, he doesn't seem to really digest the fact that his ex-wife has been murdered and that Babs has been murdered. So, you know, it's it's very silly. And then there is is some laughs because the screenplay is by Anthony Schaefer and there's definitely some dark alfred hitchcock humor that we hadn't seen in a while certainly not in topaz or 
in um, Torn Curtain. So it's been a while since he was really kind of, I think probably The Birds was the last time that he was really being very darkly comic. Yes. And so Frenzy has, again, there's several sequences that are pretty flat out amazing. And the first time we see the murder happen in um, Richard Blaney's ex-wife's love for uh, for hire shop or whatever it is, I guess it's an early love connection type uh Thing. It's uh, what, what were those things called before the days of Match.com and stuff? I guess. Oh, um, I'm trying to think what what it would be. Would it just be a personals? Yeah, it was like a it was like a match a matching service, I guess, for couples. And she doesn't realize that the guy Robert Rusk is the name of the character who's the killer. This guy Barry Foster, and he's he's sort of the the fruit salesman, I guess. And when that sequence when he murders her. And rapes her is shocking. I mean, it's still today. It's an it's a really really insane scene. And with her sticking the tongue out in her death, it's like it's a crazy scene. And only I guess Alfred Hitchcock could make it. And then the scene where he chooses not to show the murder, but instead he has the camera pulling down the corridors and down the thing. And that's another mastery. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock showing off in a great way. Yes, that was that was fantastic. And it was also interesting to me the the initial scene you were discussing that it's. It felt to me like he was finally letting loose after years working under the production code that he's like, okay, I can finally show a murder. I can finally approach it. And then he then he took the opposite approach to so as to say that, you know, I don't always have to show it. So it was like he was balancing those two. Again, for people who just want to see murder after murder, I guess to be disappointed because the second one he doesn't show. But there's a reason because he's going to star the corpse in the best sequence of the entire movie, in my opinion, is the killer is trying to get rid of the body that we don't see him kill, which is poor Babs. And because he's like a fruit and vegetable merchant, he puts her in this potato sack and he's going to load her up with all of these potatoes. Because again, I guess somehow magically, oh, that's right, because he's going to frame this guy, uh, John Finch, who he already knows is being blamed for the murder. So he, he, it's okay that you know this person's going to be found because he can always... Uh, Put, pin it on this guy because it's his girlfriend and uh, this guy knows that it's this guy's girlfriend. So he is going to load her in the body and then he doesn't suddenly realizes that his tie tack, because he strangles the women with a tie, is missing and that he has this quick flashback, very quick cut in a classic Hitchcock style, and he realizes that she grabbed the tie tack. So he goes in and he's trying to get it. And of course, then the driver is going to drive away. And then you have this absolutely amazing sequence inside the truck with this foot that keeps coming out of the bag and kicking him like it gets in his way. And then another Hitchcock thing, which you know he was never going to be allowed to do before the ratings code, is he sticks his head in between her legs and the potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> it's just such a great shot that Hitchcock was probably delighted with himself. And then even better, because it's, again, occasionally when he wants to be real, he does something that no one ever does. Anytime a body's dead, it could be dead for like five weeks in the typical movie, and it doesn't even look like a dead body. Here, he recognizes that if the body's been eight hours dead, rigor mortis is going to set in, and that thing is going to be lock tight. And there's that great scene where the hand is clutching the tie tack thing and it cannot be opened because of rigor mortis yes that was um just prying the the fingers that was probably even of 
out of that specific sequence my favorite. And even though I didn't really care whether or not he would actually get away with retrieving the pin, just the construction of that scene was was great. It was apt. I mean, I loved it. And so the entire movie and then the ending, I mean, it, it's all it all ends up too cute for words and in, in, in how it all kind of resolves. It's just ridiculous. I mean, you know, with the whole court case and him going yeah. to prison and then he escapes and it, it's just ridiculous. But it is it is a little bit of fun and it's really the last I'm glad that he got to make this film because if he just went out with Tor- Torn Curtain, Topaz, and then Family Plot and we didn't have Frenzy, you'd really like to feel like, well, geez, Alfred Hitchcock just didn't have it anymore, but he did have it a little bit in yes. Frenzy, which then takes us to Family Plot. And <laughs> this is the movie my friend, when I said I was watching this, he described it, he says, it feels like one of those 1970s Disney movies in the way it looks and just the, the clunkiness and it almost has that TV movie feel. And it's funny because Hitchcock's longtime camera operator, Leonard J. South, took over the cinematography duty for part of Frenzy. And he shot The Family Plot. Well, he also shot se- several Disney films in the 70s, like the North Avenue Irregulars. And uh, so the guy clearly had that sort of, I'm on the studio back lot and we're just going to do basic setups. And so family plot, you help. I, I mean, I had a hard time paying attention to this movie. Are there any really good Hitchcock scenes in this movie? I didn't really find much. It's interesting that you bring up the Disney aspect, because when I was thinking back about just the structure of the plot, I kept thinking back to the Scooby-Doo cartoons, <laughs> that everything was, was so hokey and you know, contrived, and there was this goofy thing with the um, the psychic who may or may not really have psychic powers, and yes. the, the taxi or the the chauffeur. I do feel that I I found the um, the pseudo psychic somewhat endearing. But you know what? The relationship with Barbara Harris is the psychic, and her boyfriend, the cab driver guy, Bruce Dern. Mm-hmm. They they made a good team. They worked well together, but I don't. I, I never, I was never engaged, and this was a, a rare instance where I split the film in two, not because I was tired, but just because I, I didn't feel like it was engaging enough that I would absorb much, and I hoped by splitting it, I, I would have in two separate hours I could really just focus. So, do you try to move? Do you try to power through a movie in one fell swoop? For the most part, yes. I know that if. It, in certain circumstances, if I'm really busy with work and I know that it may be difficult to do, I will segment it. But for the most part, if I start it, I'm I'm going to finish it. Since streaming's come along in my life, I feel like my habits have gotten bad. Where I will, if the movie really is engaging, I try to like you know watch it all the way through if I can. But sometimes, gotta admit, I watched uh, all of these Hitchcock movies in a little bit chop. Probably Marnie was the one that I watched most of the way through but family plot i watched the first 20 minutes of it it was the first one i watched way back in beginning of december and then i put it on hold and finally got back to it and uh you know i mean look the the stars in this movie william devane karen black (laughs) bruce dern barbara harris ed louder i mean these were not big names um (laughs) and so you weren't getting really a list it felt almost like a cast of a Love Boat episode was going to do an Alfred Hitchcock show. And, you know, he'd done a lot of TV at this point. And again, so much of this film felt lazy. The 
the backdrop stuff, the um, rear projection work. You know, in an otherwise interesting scene when Bruce Dern's brakes go out on that windy road, which is something he already like bar something he'd already done with uh, to catch a thief with more rear projection. By the way, it really was distracting and silly with the shenanigans so. going on with Barbara Harris and like jumping back and forth in the car and like stop or get it was ridiculous it just wasn't even tension anymore it was just silly yeah there was a lot that shifted towards silliness for for me um where where the um the kidnappers had this artificial wall that would open that <laughs> just that. It, was so, <laughs> it was so funny i i was laughing every time but the, i felt like I shouldn't. I, I felt like it was intended to be at least somewhat sophisticated. Like, oh, how clever they are! It, it really does match the you know the, the brickwork. But <laughs> I think when I think when Alfred Hitchcock tried to go a little bit more on comedy, he kind of failed. But this one, it's like imagine if this was like you know like if all we had. And I think this is why I decided let's focus on this. If all we had from Alfred Hitchcock were the five movies that we talked about today. I guarantee you he would not be in his high regard. No, absolutely not. <laughs> and like I said, Family Pot, it really was devoid of any of those great Hitchcock charms. I mean, it, it, you got plenty of his rare rare screen projection in a 1976 movie where just one year later you got Star Wars. And so it's just, you know, it was out of date. <laughs> yes. Thinking back where you were asking if there were any Hitchcockian moments, there is an image that I like of the Barbara Harris character crouching in front of the garage door that's just been slammed in her face and blocked her escape. And I feel like that image gives me something of the feeling of old Hitchcock, but but not anything that surrounds it, just as a still. <laughs> That's great. And of course, like uh, the music too, I remember uh, it was a little bit more jovial and that was John Williams. Oh, I did notice his name in the in yeah. the credits, but then I didn't, I, I did, it didn't register as I was watching. The whole thing with uh, William Devane and Karen Black, like kidnapping people. And of course, you know, not being able to be caught on that. It was just so ridiculous. Another thing that kind of crossed my mind, I guess, as, as my mind was wandering is, um, I wondered if this was around the time that Laura Dern may have been born and that this could have been the scenario where, where her father, Bruce Dern was, um, was living at, you know, as you know, and, and I felt like then that gave it a little bit of a Lynchian element that I could, uh, I could project. It's funny because Barbara Harris, she was having a moment in 76. She had this and then she was, uh, the mom in freaky Friday. And that's what I always knew oh. her from. So, um, cause you know, I was like a six year old kid at the time. Um, but I didn't see the family plot. I think that was one that I never did. And I remember when I was first into Alfred Hitchcock, right. I would, I would know this movie and I'd say to my mom, Oh, what's this? It's a family plot. What about that one? That was his last movie. And she's like, nah, that one's not very good. <laughs> and so I think I text kind of stuck with me. So, there we talked about those films I, listeners i'm not sure what you learned but here's what i did learn is that richard you you were fun you were delightful and this is hopefully the first of uh, more conversations that we can have and going back to what you mentioned at the beginning of of the episode this is the last month for these films so anyone who's listening probably only has a few days to um fill in the blanks i'll try to get this out as as quickly as possible so you got about a week but uh, boy i don't know all right let's look at out of the 
one, two, three, four, five movies, which one would you recommend people watching? I guess it could be for various reasons, but I'm guessing you're going to say Marnie. I, I am going to stick with it, but if I, if I were to exclude Marnie, I think it would have to go with with Frenzy, just because I think that that actually adds to Hitchcock's Avoir, whereas these others are not totally derivative, but I, I don't think that they stand out to anyone other than an aficionado. If you're looking for schlock, I would say family plot. <laughs> Otherwise, I go with Frenzy, and I'll tell you the one thing we didn't get to mention, but I, I don't think it was ever thought of before as this, but I look at it now because of the films that kind of came in that decade, but it's a, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of a British Jalo movie in a lot of ways. There's a lot of vivid color and there's the classic, uh, wrong man being accused of being a killer. Um, those are like big staples of Jalo. Definitely. And even the, um, the apartment of the killer has this very gaudy, um, sort of orientalist art and i believe wallpaper and i feel like that could be lifted straight out of an italian film of of that era and i think that is one thing that runs through all of these films and it is a little bit old-fashioned but it is also makes these movies a little interesting it's the costumes they're impeccable costumes and there's a lot of thought that goes into these costumes in these hitchcock movies and then for better or worse it's just interesting is these hairstyles. Almost every woman in these movies is wearing some kind of wig designed by Edith Head. I was going to ask, were all of these Edith Head costume designs? I know most of them were, but I I didn't track each one. I think that she was involved in the dresses of every single woman in all of these movies. Certainly the hair and costumes for Tippi Hedren, and also uh, Julie Andrews in Torn Curtain. And I think that her name's also on Topaz. I'm not sure she's on Frenzy or not, but I think she is on the family plot. So, you know, she was big uh, involved with Universal. This is like, you know, it's still the studio system, for better or worse, on all of these movies. Alfred Hitchcock was still working within that system. And several things, if you saw like a house or something in some of these movies, was probably like um, in Marnie, that house was probably shot on the Universal Studios lot. Speaking of that, I I learned with Torn Curtain, there is the sequence toward the end at a theater, and that was actually on the back lot somewhere, and it had been used for Lon Chaney Phantom of the Opera. So it was something like a 30-year-old set that had just been sitting dormant. By the way, that is another cool moment. Um, by that point, though, I was already done with the movie and couldn't wait for it to be over. But when Paul Newman shouts out, like in uh, in German, like fire or whatever, that was a pretty cool. Yes. I liked, uh, and I'm glad that that has come up. I, I did enjoy that scene because I felt like it was the only moment of that film that really had the spark of color that I was used to from things like Vertigo. And because it was the musical performance it reminded me a bit of powell and pressburger's the red shoes although in a clunky sort of hammy way listen my friend if you want to talk about the red shoes sometime we got to do that because that is the uh, paul paul and pressburger they're the greatest um and by the way in frenzy uh babs anna massey she was in peeping tom she was in love with the guy i don't know if you've seen peeping tom but that's another classic and it's just the colors of their movies are outstanding and the red shoes is one of my favorite color movies 
so Peeping Tom I did see, but years ago, and it's been one I've been wanting to get back to. Powell and Pressburger would, would definitely be a good topic. And Red Shoes, I believe, has now been released uh, or will be soon released on 4K Blu-ray. I have an, uh, an HD player. And again, I have to say I'm mostly streaming now. I have the Blu-ray, that the restored Blu-ray that, that Criterion did, and it, it, it's like so jaw-dropping. I'm not sure how much better it can get, but if I was to have, if somebody was to buy me that, <laughs> I wouldn't say no to it because it's, yes. it's so phenomenal. That Like I've seen, you know, different prints on like Turner Classic Movies or whatever. No, 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 no. The, the Criterion Blu-ray is so stunning. So if you don't have that in your library, Richard, and you have an HD uh, 4K player, pick it up when it comes it's because it's gonna it's it'll it's so unbelievable i have only seen it on the old criterion dvd i haven't seen i've never seen it even on the blu-ray so it's gonna be a substantial leap forward cool i can't thank you enough this is great i mean it's so funny you know instagram it's kind of it's weird to, to like get a chance to like you know go from photos to talking to somebody um but i'm really glad i did because again i enjoy hearing your perspective from the movies that you watch. And uh, sometimes I get an idea of a film that I haven't ever heard of before. And I'm like, I'm going to watch it because you've recommended it. And now we've got a chance to talk. And hopefully this is the start of many more conversations. Absolutely. I will look forward to all of them. And then, you know, Richard, is there anything you want to plug? Uh, I don't know. What's the, what, what, you, it's not, it's not Richard Strachey on Instagram. You actually you have it like abbreviated or something, right? It's actually my first initial, my, my t- first two initials and my last name. So my Instagram is R-G-S-T-R-A-C-K-E. And uh, you'll see pretty much everything on there is um, movie related. I used to do some travel writing as well, but yeah, that's on hold certainly <laughs> why i don't know <laughs> i know because uh, it doesn't seem to bother like a good half of the country people are just like treating like it's nothing um but it is something and believe me i've, I've mentioned this on the program before my wife is in healthcare, and if you ever want to know how real this thing is you just talk to her she sees it every day but uh yeah i do hope you get to go out and travel and do some travel writing at some point but uh certainly for perspectives on film you should check out uh richard's instagram page and follow him there because uh, you're going to get to some insight, not just like, oh, what's this movie? But he'll actually tell you about it. And I think that's really cool. Yes. And I'm actually doing a six film retrospective of a um, Hungarian filmmaker who had only seen two of his films and they've all been restored. They're coming out through Kino later in the year, but Metrograph, the theater in New York, is is doing them online for about two weeks. So that's my my current project. Wow. And that's Miklos um, Jansko. I'm not sure exactly on the Hungarian pronunciation, but um, it's Metrograph and they're, they're all six films are there for the next two weeks. Well, anyway, thank you so much for having me. Um, look forward to the next conversation. Yes, everyone, Richard Strachey, uh, he hails from sort of the Chicago region, I think. I'm actually, I, I am in the city of Chicago. I'm on the on the north side of Chicago. Cool. So someday when he feels that he can go back to the theater, he's got the great uh, music box theater somewhere near him. Um, I've always wanted to go to that theater. I, I, I like certain classic theaters. I kind of follow those theaters on their social media. Um, and that's definitely one that someday, if I get to Chicago, I'd like to check that theater out. It's a beautiful one and remains the, the last theater I set foot in more than almost two years ago. There it is. It'll 
hopefully be waiting for you when you can return. All right, everyone. And this is James Kent, the movie Morlock, and my guest, Richard Strachey. And it's been a delightful conversation on the later Hitchcock. I call it Hitchcock because <laughs> his last few films were not so great. But uh, I think it was more interesting to talk about films that you don't hear about when we talk about Hitchcock. Everybody can talk about Rear Window and Vertigo, uh, but not everybody's going to sit there and get a chance to talk about Topaz and Family Plot. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Uh, stay safe and watch some stuff uh, at home. <laughs> All right, bye.